Uh, this morning, we are in week three of our series through the book of Habakkuk, this Old Testament prophet. And I got to say, um, you know, I choose our series and I choose them in advance. And sometimes I get into a series and I think, why did I choose this series? This is so challenging, these texts and these topics. And Habakkuk is turning out to be one of those series. It's a, it's a dense book. It's an ancient book. And it's a book that is filled with difficult questions and uh, these sort of universal tensions around God. And we're in week three. Now, in week one, I taught about Habakkuk complaining to God about the problems that he's saw in Judah, the, the wickedness, the disrespect, the disregard for the Torah and the evil leaders that they were dealing with. And he's saying to God, there's wickedness all around me. Don't you see it? Can't you do something? And so in week one, we talked about the, the godly way to complain, how we should complain. Last week, Pastor Jared, I hope you were here or you got to listen to it or watch it later, preached a wonderful message from a very difficult text uh, about God's reply to Habakkuk. And basically, God says to Habakkuk, I see the problem. Don't worry, I have a plan. And the plan is I'm going to raise up your wicked, sinful neighbors to come uh, punish you guys. <laughs> and this morning, we're going to see Habakkuk's reply, which is basically like, I, I'm not sure I understand. Yesterday, my wife and I were in Target with our youngest daughter, Maddie, who's nine. Our two older daughters are also at this youth winter retreat where a lot of our teenagers and adult youth workers are today. And uh, we were in the toy aisle, of course, because that's where Maddie always insists that we end up. And Erin was pushing her in her wheelchair, but then she saw something. And without saying anything to Maddie, she walked away, and I stepped in, and, and I started to push Maddie's wheelchair. And Maddie thought I was still mommy, and she asked a question. I answered with my voice, and she was like, she was startled. And she, she goes, is that daddy or a total stranger? <laughs> I feel like Habakkuk at this point in his conversation with God is like, is that daddy or a total stranger? Is that God or someone I know nothing about? And so this morning as we look at uh, this short passage in Habakkuk chapter 1, we're going to see that Habakkuk is wrestling through this theological existential crisis of who he thought God was and who God is proving to be. So let's look at verse 12 and 13. We're going to start here, and we'll read more of this passage later. Uh, verse 12, he says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. It's something funny that he's doing here in this opening verse. He's, he's using these very kind names. It's kind of like when a kid, like when, when my daughters want something from me, it's, hey, greatest dad in the world, my favorite parent, right? That sort of stuff. That's kind of what Habakkuk is doing here. He's like, daddy dear, dearest, uh, surely you're, you're not going to do this. This is, this is crazy. This is not in step with who you are. You're too nice to do this. O Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. But you are pure, and you cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? What Habakkuk is basically saying is your solution doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me, and it should make sense. It's like you're going to use them to defeat us, them, they're our enemies, they're our rivals, anyone but them. It's like being a Yankee fan saying, we'll lose to anyone but not the Red Sox, right? Or Bills fans today, not Patrick Mahomes again. 
That's kind of where uh, Habakkuk is at. He's like, not the Babylonians. Your solution makes no sense to me. And then Habakkuk begins to detail and explain the lives of the Babylonians. And what we have here is a really uh, useful insight into the way of the wicked, the way of the evil. And this morning, that's really what our message is about, is the way of the wicked. Now, when I talk about the way of the wicked or the way of the evil, I want to kind of give us a warning up front. It's very easy for us to distance ourselves from that sort of description. Yeah, there are wicked people out there, and they're not in church today. (laughs) There are wicked people out there, and they're doing terrible things to other people. There are wicked people out there, but it's not us. And yet, I think what we're going to see from this text is that the wickedness that Habakkuk is describing is actually a daily battle for each and every one of us. Evil is not as uh, different and distant from us as I think we wish it would be. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a survivor of the concentration camps, so a man who saw evil up close and personal in ways that prayerfully you and I never will, he said this about evil. This is a very interesting quote. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us, And destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And this is the battle before us. So as we jump into this brief description of the way of the wicked, um, I want to encourage you to be willing to destroy a piece of your heart if necessary. And to recognize that the evil is not all out there, that often our biggest battle is right in here. So Two things we're going to learn about the wicked this morning, and the first one is this. The wicked dehumanize people. The wicked dehumanize people. Verse 14 and 15, let's keep reading. Habakkuk, describing the situation, says, Are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we only sea creatures that have no leader? Must we be strung up on their hooks and caught in their nets while they rejoice and celebrate. Now, some context, according to Genesis chapter 1, humans were created and given this mandate to actually rule over the fish of the sea. And so Habakkuk is using this metaphor that we are now the fish in the sea. We were supposed to rule over the fish in the sea, but we are the fish in the sea. This is a dehumanizing metaphor. We've lost our role as humans. And Babylon's treatment of Judah and other countries that they would conquer is kind of being described here metaphorically because Babylon would come into a a land, they would conquer a people, and then they would violently drag them out with hooks and nets. Literally, this is not a metaphor anymore. At this time in the ancient Near Eastern world, when they captured people, they would put hooks on them, and sometimes they would even put nets around them, and then they would literally drag them off as captives. This is what... Habakkuk is describing that the Babylonians would come in and the way of the wicked was to conquer others, enslave others, assimilate others, humiliate others. And we don't do this, right? I mean, (laughs) we're more civilized than that. We've advanced beyond this. Well, actually, I think there's two ways that we do exactly this. The first way is this. When I see another person as an opportunity or an obstacle, when I see another person as an opportunity or an obstacle, instead of as a image-bearing human. Now, when we see other people only as an opportunity, then their value and their worth is determined by what they can do for us, right? 
your value and your worth. You're an opportunity. You're going to open a door for me. You're going to do something for me. You're going to advance my agenda. You're going to help me on my career path. You're going to... And so we look at people and we ask questions like this. Um, how do you make me feel? Are you fun to be around? Do you make me laugh? Do I enjoy myself when I'm in your presence? And of course, those are normal questions to ask. But when we see them only through that lens, then they're not a person anymore to us. They're simply an opportunity. We're dehumanizing them. Do you meet my needs? And when you stop meeting my needs, do I need you anymore? How do you help me get what I actually want, right? And we view people differently based on their ability to help us. And I know this as a, as a, as a lifelong uh, Yankee fan. Um, there was a player named Johnny Damon who played for the Red Sox and helped them in one of the most, uh, you know, for me, tragic and ungodly uh, victories ever against uh, the Yankees. But Later, Johnny Damon switched from the Red Sox to the Yankees, cut his hair, shaved his beard, and became a Yankee. And all of a sudden, I felt very differently about Johnny Damon. Because what he was before was an obstacle, but what he was now was an opportunity. And I, I'm joking a little bit because I don't have an actual friendship or relationship with him. But we do this all the time with people. They're valuable to us only because of the opportunities that they provide for us. Now, so if they, we see them as an opportunity, then their value and their worth is determined by what they can do for us. Think about the people in your life. Is there anyone who you only see them through the lens of what they can do for you? If they're an obstacle, then their dignity and their individuality is diminished by what they can't do for you. So it's different. Their, their dignity, their value, their worth, and their individuality is, is diminished by what they cannot do for you. So if you can't do certain things for me, then I don't need to know you as a person, and I don't need to give you my time and my attention. Or if you stand in my way as an obstacle, you're no longer just a person, you're those people. You're now sort of conveniently grouped into a category of people that I just completely walk away from and dismiss. If you are in my way, then I'm justified in treating you however I want in order to get around you, to get past you, to get beyond you. And if you don't agree with me, and if you don't, uh, then I can say whatever I want about you. You are no longer a person. You're just one of those people. These are how we dehumanize people. We see them as opportunities or we see them as obstacles. Also, it's not just people who, who are against you. It's also people who you identify. They can't do anything for you. I remember years ago, my dad asking this question from this stage uh, in a message saying, or it wasn't a question, it was a statement. He said, one of the greatest proofs or tests of your spirituality and your maturity is how you treat people who can do nothing for you in return. One of the greatest tests of your faithfulness to Jesus is not that you're in church this morning and not that you gave and not that you sang and, and those are all good things. Not that you read your Bible this week. Those are all good things. But how do you treat people who can do nothing for you in return? It actually reveals how much of our heart Jesus has. And as we look at people and we dehumanize them and reduce them to opportunities or obstacles, what we're actually robbing from them is something that God gave them, which is that they bear the very image of our creator God. Listen, friends, you have never met a single person in this world who does not bear the image of God. It doesn't matter what choices they've made. It doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't matter how they, how they live. They still bear his image in some way. Now, all of us bear his image in a sort of marred, broken way because of the sin in this world. And Jesus, the perfect image bearer, came into this world, allowed his image to be marred on the cross so that we can have someday the hope of the perfect image of Jesus being restored to us. That's one of the ways of seeing the narrative of Scripture. And yet, 
You'll never meet a person that doesn't bear his image. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, says this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. This is what C.S. Lewis is saying is how we should look at people because of how God has created them. So the first way we dehumanize people is we see them as opportunities or we see them as obstacles. The second way that we dehumanize people is when we see them through our pain or through our problems. It's an old saying, but it's so true. Hurt people hurt people. And when we hold on to our pain, and when we allow our pain to become our identity, it will change the way that we see other people. We will be determined at any cost to not be hurt, even if it means not giving meaningful love and care and access to other people in our lives. Or we'll be determined to be the one who hurts first because we can't be hurt again when we see people through our pain. Also, when we see, three, see people through our problems, we think that bad circumstances excuse bad behavior. Last weekend, I wasn't here with you. I was speaking at a conference in uh, Wapaka, Wisconsin, and um, had the worst trip of my life in terms of my travel experience. Not a single one of my flights went according to plan. Um, Spent the extra night in Chicago, almost didn't get back here on Monday. They wanted to fly me into Albany. It was, a, it was a circus. And in the midst of that, I ended up on the phone with an agent from the airline that I was flying with. And I'd love to say that I was gracious and, 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 and Christ-like and patient and that I saw them as a human. But I realized, and the irony is I was already working on this message. After I got off the phone, I was like, I dehumanized that person. I forgot, that's a real person. Like, that's, a, that's someone that God loves and that God created and that God placed his image in. And, and they're just doing their job. Like, they're not in control of the things that have wrecked my weekend. And I, and I just felt like I had to repent in the moment and say, I, I thought I was justified in raising my voice towards them or being a little irritated or short with them because of how bad my day had been. <laughs> Anyone relate to that? I mean, we say it all the time. I've just had a bad day. I've just had a bad day. And I understand that's real, and I understand that's not an easy thing to overcome. Yet part of the work of the grace of God in our lives is freeing us from allowing our problems to change the way we treat other people and the way that we see other people. And when we do it, we dehumanize them. And the wicked dehumanize people. The Babylonians were about to do it to Judah, and the truth is, is we do it to each other. The second thing about the wicked is this. The wicked don't just dehumanize people. They deify things. They deify things. They make good things into God-like things. Let's look at this passage, verse 16. Habakkuk, still talking about the Babylonians, says, then they will worship their nets. He's still using this metaphor of nets and fishing, right? He says, they will worship their nets that were used to capture them, they will burn incense in front of their nets 
and they will say this, these nets are the gods who have made us rich. Boy, this is a snapshot of idolatry. Worshiping things other than worshiping God. Worshiping the work of their hands. We made these nets and these nets made us. That's what they're essentially saying. And while that may not seem like something we struggle with, I can assure you it is something we struggle with very much in our society. The nets for us are maybe not physical fishing nets, but the nets for us might be our jobs, our careers, our positions, our, our titles, our success, um, uh, the things that we're good at, the things that we're known for. See, we're, every single person is a, is a worshiper. We talk about this a lot at Trinity that we're all worshipers. It's not that the worshipers go to church on Sunday and the non-worshipers don't go to church or that the worshipers are religious and the non-worshipers are non-religious. No, every, or irreligious. Every person is a worshiper because worship is ultimately just this. It's attributing ultimate worth to something or someone. And it's, it's, set, it's lifting something up and saying, I will live for you and I will pursue you and I will go after you. And every single human being lives for something. And because everybody lives for something, it means everybody serves something. And because everyone serves something, as Bob Dylan saying, everybody is a worshiper. Everybody lives for something. And the root of all sin, the root of all wickedness is deifying things, worshiping creation instead of the creator. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter one. And there's a connection, by the way. As you deify things, you dehumanize, you dehumanize people. As you worship um, things that are not God, it begins to change the way that you see yourself and the way that you see each other. So the questions for us this morning are this. What is your net? What are your nets? What are those things that you would look at and worship them and quote-unquote, burn incense in front of them, which means simply to, to honor them and to revere them? What are the things that you look at them and you say, this is why I'm rich? Or a different word, this is why I'm happy. This is why I'm satisfied. This is why I'm important. This is why I matter. Well, whatever the this is, that's your net. Those are your nets. What do you think has made you rich? Or what do you look at and you think that has the potential to make me rich, that has the potential to make me happy, that has the potential to give me peace, that has the potential to make me feel like I'm worth the space I take up? Those are your nets. And when we adore them and they have the attention of our minds and the affection of our hearts, we are making them gods of this world. Now, one thought on this and then we're going to get close to the end here. When we deify things, there's two things that always results. When we worship things instead of God, when we worship the creation instead of the creator, there's two things that always happen, always, always. One is deep disappointment, and the other is deep division. Deep disappointment when we find out that that thing can't save us. Deep disappointment when we get it all, and it's not enough. I remember years ago in an interview, Jim Carrey, the famous actor, comedian, said, he said, I wish everybody could get wealthy and rich and famous so that they would all realize it's not enough. It's not enough. The most miserable people in the world are the people who got everything that they thought they would ever want and still are miserable, still aren't satisfied. So when we serve the nets of this world, when we serve the false gods of this world, when we deify and have functional saviors like career and power and access and control and acceptance, there's deep disappointment because they will fail us and we will often fail them. And when we fail them, they actually have no power to forgive us. 
but it also leads to deep division. And the deep division is this, when somebody questions your choice of nets. What? You think that's the way you should go? You think, you think wealth matters most? I think family matters most. And what you're saying is you got the wrong nets and I got the right nets and then we begin to divide. And that's the way our country and our lives kind of are. We, we divide deeply over these things, not because we believe things to be true, that's fine, and we should have deep convictions, but because those things have become godlike to us, and when they have such power over us. So, what do the wicked do? They dehumanize people, and they deify things, and as I finish, I'm going to ask Pastor Antonia to join me. I want us to consider this. How does God respond to wickedness? How does the God of the Bible respond to the problem of wickedness? And I want us to see the rest of this passage. Verse 17, it says, This is still Habakkuk speaking. Will you let them get away with this forever? Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquest? And then chapter two begins with this verse. Habakkuk says, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. He he positions himself like a watch guard on a tower of of a city. He says, there I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. And so Habakkuk has been saying to God, do something about the wickedness around me. And God says, okay, I will. And Habakkuk says, not that. (laughs) That solution doesn't make any sense. But what is God's ultimate response? Does God care? Does he notice? Does he see the wickedness in our world today? How long will we have to deal with the wickedness of our world? And God responds. And there's two ways in which he responds. And the first way is this. The first truth is this. The wicked will be judged. The wicked will be judged. Maybe not on our timeline, maybe not in our lifetime, but the wicked will be judged. Sometime this week, I encourage you to read Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is the perfect psalm to read alongside Habakkuk. Because in Psalm 73, the psalmist whose name is Asaph starts the whole psalm with a question that maybe you've asked at some point. Is it worth it to serve God? He said, I look around and the wicked are happy and they got the big homes and they got the big bank accounts and they seem to be doing just fine. Is it worth it to serve God? In Psalm 73, verse 16, it says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It was wearing him out, wearing him out, until I went into the sanctuary of God, until he got into the presence of Jesus. Then he says, I I discerned their end. And he said, do we not have this? But verse 18, truly, he says this about the wicked, you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin." How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakens, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And what he's realizing is that the wicked will receive their just deserts. And, and, and listen, we don't rejoice in that, and we don't take joy in that, but it can, it can comfort and sustain and strengthen our hearts to know that nobody gets away with anything that God sees everything, and those who don't turn to Jesus will be held accountable and responsible someday for the ways in which they dehumanized people and deified things. The wicked will be judged. That's the first way that God responds. But the second way that God responds, and this is so wonderful, is not just that the wicked will be judged, but listen, that the wicked can be saved. That the wicked can be saved. Habakkuk says, I'm going to climb up on my watchtower. I'm going to stand at my guard post. And I'm going to look out. And I'm going to say, God, what are you going to do about the wickedness in this world? And if I could have said something to Habakkuk, I would have said, keep watching. Watch for hundreds of more years because you're not going to believe what God's going to do. 
about the wickedness in this world. He's going to humanize himself. He's going to write himself into this story. He's going to come to this earth and experience the wickedness of this world. Habakkuk, keep watching. The wicked can be saved. Look at the manger. Look at the cross. Look at God's plan where the weak overcome the strong, the foolish confounds the wise, victory through defeat and salvation through sacrifice. Now listen, Habakkuk's beef with God is this. The wicked being used, the super wicked being used to punish the lesser wicked makes no sense. And then we get to the cross and what about this? What about the never wicked being punished in the place of all the wicked? And yet that's the heart of the gospel. And that's the hope of the world. That Jesus, the never wicked, the perfect son of God, he was punished for all the wicked. I know we would love God to make sense. I can I could list to you five situations in my life right now that I wish God would make more sense. I get that. But be careful about saying to God, you must make sense to me. And you must make sense in this world. Because listen, friends, if God made sense, there would be no manger. If God made sense, there'd be no cross. And if God made sense, there'd be no hope for the wicked. And yet, because his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than ours, the wicked can be saved. You and I can be saved. So how does God ultimately respond to wickedness? He humanizes himself. He takes on flesh. He humbles himself. He becomes a servant. He humiliates himself upon the cross. Christianity is the only religion who at its center is the humiliation of its own God. And that's what he does about the problem of wickedness. He makes a way for the wicked to be saved. Let's pray together.